0: this is episode 99 of the Garden DC podcast. We're joined by Amy Highland. She's a conservation liaison connecting rare and endangered plants with people. She's an authority on native plants whose curiosity often drives her to create new ways for conservators to think of the natural world. She's traveled throughout the temperate forests of North America to find rare plants in need of conservation at Mount Cuba Center in Hokesson, Delaware. You'll definitely want to hear her story about how feral pigs impact the trilliums and we'll talk all about that plant in this episode. Also in this episode, we are sharing our plant profile on Candy Tuft and I'm going to share what's going on in my garden as well as some upcoming local gardening events. We're joined this episode by Amy Highland of the Mount Cuba Center in Delaware, and we're going to be talking all about one of my favorite native wildflowers, trilliums. Welcome, Amy.
1: Thank you so much, Kathy. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us. So your title is Director of Collections and Conservation Lead, correct?
1: Yes, that's what I do.
0: so let's dive into that a little bit and maybe some of your background before we talk all about the wonderful trillium and how people in the mid-atlantic especially can grow them Um, but we like to ask here on the garden dc podcast were you born with chlorophyll in your veins and a green thumb what was baby amy like
1: Yes, I think I was, you know, I was that kid that uh, was too busy picking dandelions in the outfield to be bothered with T-ball. I uh, I like to say that my, my trillium adventure began when I was a little girl running through the woods of Michigan and picking wildflowers for my grandmother on Mother's Day. Of course, back then, I did not know that if you pick a trillion, you set back its life cycle, its reproduction cycle. And so I, to a certain extent, feel responsible for a little bit of the the depopulation that happened in Michigan because of those years as a little girl running barefoot in the woods. But uh, we're making up for it now and definitely working towards preserving the species for the future.
0: And so did you pursue that as a profession straight out of high school?
1: Yes. So I went to Purdue University and I I thought I would have a different career path, but it was one of those things where I wasn't very satisfied with my classes and spent a long time doing the soul searching and you know, what am I gonna do with my life? And when I felt like I finally got it, I remember calling up my father and saying, Dad, I know what it is. I'm gonna be a, a horticulturist and a botanist. And he kind of did one of those pause on the phone things and then said, well yeah, we always knew that. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's it's something that's been with me a long time now whether or not I knew it consciously is is up for debate.
0: And was Mount Cuba the first place you worked at or did you start in the uh, the profit side of horticulture?
1: Well, right out of college, I went to Longwood Gardens, which is where many uh, horticultural students end up um, in their early years. And while at Longwood Gardens, I I met the dual loves of my life, my husband, Mark, and my uh, love of systematics and botany. And uh, there I became a plant recorder. I came to Mount Cuba Center in 2006, and this is where I have been for the rest of my career. Mount Cuba Center is definitely home but one of the things I learned very early on here was how important it is for my work to match with my ideals and my values. And the mission of Mount Cuba Center is one that really fits those values. We have a mission here to inspire people through our beautiful gardens, but also to motivate those people into conservation action. And through all of those actions, we are meant to improve the health of habitats and ecosystems. And that is the most exciting part of my work, is that every day I get to work with people to preserve an environment that I feel is very precious.
0: That must be so fulfilling.
1: It is, and it's a lot of fun. I feel very lucky every day.
0: Can you walk us through a typical day? Are you out there planting or is there such a thing as a typical day that you're, you know, spending half your day on the computer and half the day outdoors or what is it like?
1: My duties here at Mount Cubis are are very broad. So I oversee the living collections. So all of the plants in the garden, but also the non-living collections. So my days are pretty varied. Uh, One day I'll be out wild collecting plant material in the deep south. One day, I'll be out on the South Terrace uh, applying hot pepper wax with a blowtorch to our lead statues. One day, I'll be in the office working on a computer talking about governance of, of collections and how to uh, ethically source uh, seed materials and that kind of thing. So it, it runs the, a broad scope. But uh, for the most part, my time is spent building a collection, governing that collection, uh, documenting it, and making sure it's as usable as possible to as many people as possible. So it's not just the general public that we serve, though that is a huge portion of our audience. uh, But they come in to see the plants and, and primarily be inspired by them, the beauty of the plants. But we also serve the scientific community. We're providing propagules and other things for them to be able to perform their work. And we serve the nursery industry as well. One of the issues with native plants is that they're simply not available for homeowners to buy in the nursery trade like exotic plant material is available. And so we work very closely with the nursery trade to try and make these things more available to homeowners, people who see the connection between native plants and biodiversity and want to help.
0: And so Mount Cuba, to let our listeners know a little bit more about that, you are mm-hmm. not a nursery or garden center selling plants. You are a public display garden and research garden.
1: That's correct. We are a public garden located in northern Delaware. We are the former estate of the Lamont DuPont Copeland, and we are a garden with a conservation mission. Mrs. Copeland said uh, when she was founding us, that she wanted this to be a place where we could focus on wildflowers that she grew up with as a child, but also where people could learn. And so we focus everything we do on native plants of the eastern temperate forests and on creating conservators.
0: And a previous guest of the Garden DC podcast was George Coombs, And he talked to us about the garden flocks trials at Mount Cuba and the trial side of things. So our listeners heard a little bit about Mount Cuba and the collection there. But maybe you can also talk about how the visitor experience is when they enter. And I can maybe say a few words about that as you know from the visitors eyes that my mm-hmm. first time visiting mount cuba it was like a fairy garden that's how i can describe it <laughs> It was just like <laughs> ah you got you entered a small parking lot and then you were a little wooded trail leads you to the main house and then you were guided into the gardens um, and the main collections but even that little parking lot wooded trail that kind of leads you in as a little preview that to me, just the abundance of trilliums and other native ephemeral wildflowers, I was blown away.
1: Oh, I think that's a lovely way to describe Mount Cuba, truly. And I think of it as a little fairy garden too. Of course, I've been here a very long time. So I know the garden really intimately uh, but one of my favorite parts is experiencing it with others. So when I have visitors and I get to walk around with them and hear their exclamations and the things that delight them, is it also delights me. Uh, but like you said, sometimes it can be difficult to get out of the parking lot, especially if I'm walking around with a botanist colleague or someone who really knows <laughs> this material in the wild. And they stop and they say, oh, my goodness, you have one of those in the parking lot. That's really fun. But you also uh, touched on another unique feature of Mount Cuba, which is that we have these quiet little vignettes all over the garden, just little places where you can stop and uh, ponder life. And you have all of these amazing things to look at. There are so many different areas tucked away, like little gem boxes that you can just stand in one place and look at the diversity and see all of the beautiful flowers watch the pollinators doing their things and listen to the wind.
0: And I think one of my favorite spots at Mount Cuba is, I don't know the exact name of it, but it's kind of a glade of moss around Ah. a pond, um, so a natural pond there. And it's like at the lower elevation than most of the rest of the garden, I believe.
1: Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. We have a moss bank here at Mount Cuba Center And it is the product of our founder, Mrs. Copeland. She had this theory about gardening, this way that she gardened, where she really tried to listen to nature. So when there was an area that needed development or a piece of land that was added to Mount Cuba Center, she would often sit and wait. And she would watch that space for some time. She would think about that space for some time. And then she would also let nature put up what wanted to be there. What did the birds bring in? What naturally occurred there? So the Moss Bank is an example of we tried to plant things. They didn't work. What thrived there was moss. And so we started encouraging the moss. And now it is an entire little hillside full of moss and bluets and trillium and other fantastic spring ephemerals that uh, is definitely worth coming to see.
0: I would describe it as magical, just that one, that one section. That's all I need. It's so like, you know, straight out of a a little storybook, but let's move on to our topic of the episode trilliums. And I'm going to start off by asking you about a rumor and maybe you can confirm it if it's true or not. So I had heard that the staff at Mount Cuba goes around to all the trilliums and like clears them you know by hand any leaves or litter you know that's fallen around them from the plants around them and then props up their little heads so everybody <laughs> can see them from the pathways because of course you want to stick to the pathways and not step into any of those beds
1: oh that's adorable but no we do not do that <laughs> <laughs> Uh, trillium tend to stand tall on their own. They don't really need any support. Some of them have a nodding habit, which means that they their flowers face towards the ground where we imagine their, their pollinator friends are coming from. Some of them uh, naturally are more upright and more facing the sun, uh, but that's just a product of, of the species that we're looking at. It's nothing that the horticulturists do themselves. Now, one thing I will say that we do that does seem a little excessive to most gardeners, is uh, we deadhead our trillium collection. That means when the trilliums start to produce their fruit, we go around and snap off all of those capsules to make sure that the plants do not reproduce. The reason we do this is for conservation. We hold a conservation collection of trillium. And that means that we need to keep our mother lines separate and we need to make sure that they're not hybridizing with one another. When you bring multiple species together in one common garden that have the potential to cross with each other, but in the wild are separated by long distances or mountain chains or rivers. Uh, They're going to cross more easily here because they have access to each other. So we need to prevent that from happening. So when you look at a Trillium cuneatum at Mount Cuba Center, it is a Trillium cuneatum, not a Trillium cuneatum hybrid.
0: Hmm, Interesting. So those seed pods are pla- the capsules, they never come to fruition, um, so you're not propagating from those seeds either.
1: That's correct. If we need to sexually propagate Trillium here at Mount Cuba Center, we will intervene. So we'll put pollen on a stigma with a paintbrush and then bag that flower to make sure that no insects have access to it and inadvertently pollinate it with something else. So it's a process if we wish to propagate them that way. Usually, if we are propagating trillium, it is happening through wild sources that we are starting in our greenhouse. And as many of your listeners probably know, it takes many, many years to produce a trillium from seed. So we start them in the greenhouse in year one. And in year five to seven, we're moving them out to the garden where they are mature plants capable of reproducing and producing those flowers.
0: Yeah, and that years long from seed to bloom process. Let's dig a little bit more into that. So that explains for a lot of us why when purchasing a trillium from a native plant nursery, the price tag is not small and, and you're getting one little trillium usually.
1: That is accurate. Uh, they are a little bit difficult to transplant. You need to know what you're you're moving. It's not something that you can simply stick a shovel in the ground and and divide a plant, Uh, like irises. Irises are are really easy to divide and move about. Trillium are a bit more sensitive, and you'll see that in the wild as well, that they prefer these more pristine habitats. They don't do well with compaction. They don't do well uh, with a lot of deer browse or that kind of thing. Uh, So you're going to want to take a lot of care when transplanting a trillium.
0: Hmm. So obviously they like the woodland understory, so fairly mm-hmm. shaded, or could we call it almost a open shade where you're getting some sun on them though?
1: Well, because trillium is an ephemeral, its life cycle happens before the canopy fills out. So you're getting a full sun effect in what we would otherwise consider a full shade situation. So the plants will come up in early spring. The earliest one we have blooming here at Mount Cuba Center could be up as early as March 15th. That one's known as the snow trillium. But usually by the end of April, they're at peak. And you can see the greatest diversity here of the trilliums that uh, grow naturally in the eastern temperate forests. They will send up one leaf on their first year. And then if they are getting enough nutrients and access to sunlight and all of those kinds of things in the next year or two, they will send up that traditional three-leaved shape uh, that gives them their name Trillium, three parts. So the three leaves will be up for a couple of years. And once that uh, leaf has produced enough energy, then the following year you will see a flower come up. The plants actively start growing underground in October. And that's when we have to be careful about not stepping in the beds and, and, again, compacting that soil around them. But once they are able to put that flower up uh, in their first reproductive year, that's when it can start cross-pollinating with others and you start to see the seeds form. It's usually year five to seven when you get that flower in about the same timeline of when you'll get those first seeds.
0: Yeah I've usually been told seven years and I think that's kind of just setting your expectation to not not (laughs) expect it right away but you know plant it now for tomorrow. Um, So get started on your chilium garden now but I was going to ask when you were saying so it's deciduous shade not evergreen shade of course Um, and most of you know our eastern woodland is that way but it wants a loamy, loose soil that's well-draining. It never wants to sit in wet ground, correct?
1: So that's a really great question. Trillium is one of those plants that can be more variable within the garden than it necessarily is in the wild. And it, it does, to a certain extent, depend on the species that you're dealing with. But I do tend to find them near a body of water. They do like to have access to water, though they don't want to sit in the water, so they don't want to be in swampy conditions. Uh, I also find them usually in places where the deer cannot get access to them or places where they have some other form of protection. So in some cases, there might be a steep hillside, and trillium is throughout this steep hillside, but only on the downhill side of a tree trunk or a boulder or a a decaying log or something like that. Something where they're getting that protection of things moving downhill.
0: Interesting, so I cited mine correctly because I (laughs) snugged them right up against um, a bird bath at at the base of it and kind of all around there and just tried to get them that little bit of protection. But you did mention the D word of deer. So Uh, yeah, and so, Mount Cuba is protected by deer fencing all around, Um, so I would say that's probably your number one way to protect your trillium from deer would be that.
1: That is correct. We recently did a study along with several colleagues uh, called a Red List, and this is something that the International Union for the Conservation of Nature puts together but we brought together scientists from all over North America and we looked at trillium, how their distribution ranges are changing and in most cases they are contracting. And we looked at the threats facing trillium in the wild. The threat that we all knew was going to be high on the list is is the white-tailed deer. And trillium uh, were once upon a time in the lily family and I am convinced that anything in the lily family is deer candy. They just love it. Hmm. Uh, It only takes one bite of a trillium plant to knock it back to that first year one leaf phase. So even if you have a population full of many mature adults all producing flower, if a deer comes through and cuts each of those stems back, then the trillium itself will revert to a time when it could only produce one leaf at a time. And it kind of has to start its life cycle all over again. And then it, again, will take five to seven years before it can reproduce.
0: And I was looking at, you were sharing uh, some of that study that it's not just deer, but feral pigs are also an issue.
1: Yes. And this is one that usually shocks people because you don't really think of feral pigs as being an issue in North America. But it is becoming a huge problem and even more so in the South. Uh, and, And the hog population is steadily moving north. So when deer come in and damage a population, like I said, they set it back. Uh, And if they do this too many years in a row, well, then the population dies because it simply can't reproduce and carry on. Hogs are completely different. They don't come through and graze like the grazing animals do. Instead, they use their snouts to kind of lift everything up from the soil. And that effectively will take the roots out. And it makes it so that next year it can't even put up that one leaf. It's effectively done, uh, and it has wiped out many, many populations in that way.
0: Wow. Yeah, I've heard so many stories of their garden destruction in Georgia and certain pockets of the Carolinas and coming up through Virginia. It's kind of, you know, it's like coming, almost like a horror movie, (laughs) these fair pigs. You would think they would stay out of more populated areas, though.
1: Yes, yes, but they are hungry and they are multiplying, uh, and they multiply very fast. Uh, one sow can give birth to, I think, more than nine pups at a time, and, uh, so, and they can do this multiple times in one growing season. So the advancement of feral hogs is very rapid, and, and there's a, a lot that they need to, to sustain that current population.
0: I had no idea that they could have nine offspring and also several litters per year. I'm shocked on that.
1: It was very disturbing to us when we started looking at all of the threats. We all expected the white-tailed deer. Uh, White-tailed deer are devastating to a lot of biodiversity in the eastern temperate forests. But the hogs, because of course we don't see them every day like we see deer, uh, just we're not on our radar. Now, the other thing that we discovered through all of this is, of course, threats are coming from humans as well. Land use change uh, is making their natural habitats go away and that kind of thing. We also have invasive plant species that we are dealing with. This one, however, ended up being a little bit half one way, half another. We look at invasive plants and we say, oh, my goodness, that's displacing all of our native flora. If that you know, multiflora rose or kudzu is taking over, then our trillium don't have the space they need to thrive. However, in many areas in the wild, what we're seeing is the deer are eating everything except for what they can't get to. And if you have a multiflora rose protecting your trillium, the deer sometimes cannot eat it. So we have new threats. We have old threats. We have human threats. And then we have threats that can sometimes be helpful, which was really confusing for us, uh, but interesting nonetheless.
0: Yeah, there's never just black and white, right? There's always these gray layers of, you know, it's, it's an invasive, it's horrible, it, it's going to be evil, but yet it actually has some protective qualities and, and also might hold in erosion or have some other tasks that it does in the landscape.
1: Yes, exactly right. Ecology is so diverse and varied and unknown. And that's sometimes a little difficult to explain as well. You know, my children, for example, say, oh, well, you know, the scientists have already figured all of that out and you know we'll just go ask the scientists. But the reality is that there are far too many plant species in North America for us to know everything about every species. And we know even less about all of the various ways with which they interact, not only with other plants, but with other life forms as well, such as fungi and insects and, and our mammal friends.
0: Yeah, it does bring up um, recent research on mycorrhizomes in the soil and that they usually have some type of direct relationship with the plants in them. Has Trillium been paired with any specific mycorrhizae?
1: No, it has not. Not to my knowledge anyway.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I wonder if like one one day they'll just stumble across it, like, aha, here's the key right there.
1: <laughs> it's very possible, though. One of the things uh, that is kind of leading us towards it doesn't have a specific mycorrhizal association is that we can grow it in captivity uh, fairly easily. So oftentimes, if you can't grow a grass species, or if you can't grow an orchid species Mm -hmm. um, in the greenhouse, it's usually because it's missing something fundamental like that, mycorrhizae. This trillium uh, has been grown in multiple places across the world, uh, usually fairly successfully. Now, you have to wait a long time for it, but usually people can find success uh, sooner or later. So if there is a mycorrhizal association it's probably not one that is essential for the life cycle of this plant
0: that's good good to hear of all the other difficulties of growing chilium that this probably isn't one of them it's nice. So that does bring us to something you alluded to before, which is the ethical sourcing of trillium, so either from seed or the plant. Um, Could you talk about that a little bit more and how a mid-Atlantic, especially a gardener in our area, might find trillium?
1: Yes, uh, it is difficult to find them in, in cultivated commercial sources, because it is so expensive to produce them. Like you said earlier, they're very expensive to purchase. Long ago, when many, many native plants were harvested from the wild as a way to put them in your garden, trillium was also harvested in that way. Nowadays, it's less common a practice, though I would certainly encourage everyone to ask before they purchase a trillium, where did this plant material come from? If they say, it was rescued off of a roadside, I would not buy that trillium because it most likely means that it was harvested directly from the wild. If they say we have them sourced out of Oregon and they come to us in flasks, that's probably much more likely that it was done with um, all of these ethics in mind and that nothing is being taken from the wild so that we can have them in our gardens. And that's really what we want to avoid. Whenever we're working with native plants, we want to ensure that we are not causing harm to those populations that still exist in the wild. One of the ways that you can ensure no harm is done is by not removing their propagules. Don't take away the little babies. They need those to provide for the next generation.
0: Hmm. And so the name you said for the little babies, can you spell that for us?
1: Oh, the propagules, Mm -hmm. P-R-O-P-A-G-U-L-E-S. That simply means how we propagate it in some cases a propagule is a seed in some cases a propagule is a cutting in some cases it's simply a division
0: excellent so that's your vocabulary word for the day listeners (laughs) (laughs) we're going to test you on that later so and you had talked about picking as a child and that set back the flower a Uh bit but hopefully they still survived and thrived But that does affect, you know, in your own home garden, if you, say, have trillium, you might want to refrain from using them in, say, a cut flower arrangement, uh, were you to know that.
1: That's exactly right. They aren't going to last very long on your kitchen table. They're going to be there much longer if you allow them to thrive in the garden. And then, of course, you'll get another one next year.
0: And I was thinking another term we might define for our listeners is ephemeral. Um, So there, you know, things are on a spectrum. You know, things are annual, perennial, but you don't usually see at a garden center a section called ephemeral,
1: and you don't often find ephemerals for sale. Uh, so that's a really good point too. So ephemeral is a plant that uh, it's a perennial, so it reoccurs year after year, but its um, its evolutionary mechanism, its survival strategy is that it is going to get all of its energy and go through its entire life cycle very early in the year. So it lives on the forest floor. Usually it would receive very little sunlight, but in the spring before the leaves on the trees fully expand out, they have access to all the sunlight they can drink in. So they have a lot of energy being captured in a very short period of time. The leaves and the flowers will come up very early, They will open. Usually ephemerals are very important for pollinators just getting started in the spring, just waking up. And then they are pollinated, they've produced their seeds, and then they die back very quickly. So they go dormant. Usually ephemerals are dormant by June, and that means that you will not see any sign of them. Their leaves will be down as well as their flowers.
0: And so those pollinators are very early season pollinators. Do you know specifically um, some of those pollinator pairings for certain trilliums?
1: We do not. And that's one of the exciting things that we're working on with trillium is trying to have more definitive information about who's pollinating them. We know that they're important. We know that insects visit them. We know that their seed produces an elliosome. That's sort of a, a fatty package that kind of attaches to the seed that, that ants find quite delicious. And it's kind of like a, a reward for the insect. The insect goes and it takes the elysome with the seed attached to it back to its nest, and all the ants get to eat the the fatty elysome, and the trillium gets planted. So it's a fantastic symbiotic relationship with ants. Uh, But we know of other things visiting them as well. It does depend on the species, and it depends on the day. So... Uh, if you're visiting a large population of, of a particular trillium, maybe only half of them have scent that day. Well, that half are the ones that are getting pollinated that day. I've seen beetles, flies, bees. Uh, and there are some theories, some very interesting theories out there that relate flower color to the pollinator. Hmm. So, Dr. Robert Ragusa over at Cornell is currently working on the volatile chemicals that trillium produce and trying to find out how does a plant, a plant life form, develop the same exact smell as carrion, an animal life form. So he's looking into this, capturing these chemicals, trying to figure out the evolutionary pathway. But in doing so, he theorizes that the red stinky trilliums are pollinated by carrion eaters, more like flies and that kind of thing, uh, or uh, insects that use carrion for brooding sites. Mm -hmm. And then the light colored trilliums, the whites, the yellows, the sweet smelling trillium are the ones that are being pollinated by bees and uh, those kinds of insects.
0: That is so fascinating to me. And that does explain one of the red Trillium nicknames, which is Stinking Benjamin, which I, I, ah, was, I thought yes. was hilarious because I was like, who's Benjamin and why does he stink? So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yes, Trillium is a it's a fetid smell. And depending upon the nose, it could smell like curdled milk or it can smell like stinky socks, uh, but it's definitely not a pleasant smell, at least not to humans.
0: And that does bring up some of the other common names that are given to trillium. So what I most hear is wake robin, and I think that's the trillium erectum, the red trillium that is one of the first to bloom, and at the same time the robins are appearing in your garden. But then I've also heard the term beth root. Do you know where that might Uh originate from?
1: Yes. Trillium have ethnobotanical uses as well. Mostly that means that they're used for herbal medicine or that kind of thing. Bethroot root uh, is an old English way of saying birth root. And there are certain forms of trillium hmm. that uh, act as an astringent. And so it was given to women uh, to help after, after childbirth. We're seeing this play out a little in modern times as somewhat of a problem for trillium because the uh, botanical skincare uh, industry or that kind of thing is is looking for natural ways to accomplish uh, what we do with with chemicals. They will often put trillium in their products to act as an astringent. Uh, Unfortunately, though, trillium is very difficult to cultivate. And so if you're not careful and you have trillium in your cosmetics or your skincare products or that kind of thing you have to be very careful do your your research and make sure that these things are not being poached from the wild that they are being sourced responsibly and ethically
0: yeah i have seen some lotions and things touted with trillium extract or something like that and i had wondered about those
1: yes and that is another conclusion that we came to in our report Our information is not as complete as we would like it to be, but we are certainly seeing the results uh, in, in poaching confiscations that happen where large quantities of trillium are being confiscated.
0: So there are 39 native trilliums in the US, correct? And is that all in the eastern United States?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Depending upon what you consider a trillium, there are roughly 50 species in North America. Uh, it depends on how you want to parse it out. In its largest sense, if we are big tent thinking about trillium, roughly 51% are endangered and threatened. If you think about trillium in its narrowest sense, and this is a very small group of plants, uh, 31%. Is considered rare and in danger. So it really just depends on the taxonomists that you're speaking with as to what they count in the group trillium and out of the group trillium.
0: I love it how there's just not one answer. <laughs> <laughs> Never. No, exactly. Um, so are there trilliums elsewhere in the world? Oh yes.
1: The center of indentism. And that means the the hot spot of diversity, where we see the most diversity, is in the southeastern United States. Usually this means this is their place of origin. And we know, based on other plant species and just biodiversity patterns in general, that the southeastern United States acted as a refugia in glacial times. So the glaciers came down, they pushed a bunch of species down into the south, and they hung out there until the glaciers receded and they were able to recolonize north. Well, what happened with the Trillium is when they were pushed south, they found fantastic land and they decided to stay. But because they stayed, they started diversifying diversifying there. And so that's where we, we believe that the majority of genetics come from. There is another center of diversity in the American Northwest and another in China, Japan, Korea. So there are three major areas of Trillium, but the most diversity is located here in the American Southeast.
0: And so for Mount Cuba's collection, it is all the native ones, of course, you're not showing any of the Asian ones.
1: That's correct. We have over 84 taxa here at Mount Cuba Center you're going to see a majority of those forms in late April. And we have a color scale that ranges from a stark white to a creamy white, to a brilliant yellow, to deep maroon, to coppery forms of flowers, to sanguine blood shapes. You know, there's there's just so much diversity and, and it's all from these Eastern temperate forests.
0: And I think what makes chillium so attractive in addition to those beautiful flowers, is that mottled leaf. So maybe we could talk a little bit about the foliage on there.
1: Sure. Trillium come in two major forms. The pedicillate that have these kind of stalks that hold up the trillium flower and the sessiles that sit right on top of their leaves. And depending upon what trillium you have, those leaves can be just as showy as the flowers themselves. So again, leaves of three, petals of three, uh, anthers of three. But you're going to find three leaves almost com- uh, perfectly symmetrical in in their arrangement, and they tend to have these spotted leaves, this mottled leaf pattern that kind of looks like dappled sunlight on a forest floor.
0: And I think they almost look a little bit like the mayapple, which comes up a little bit later. And so you'll oh. hear uh, trillium also described as like toed, you know, little umbrellas the same way as mayapples are, um, but of course mayapples are a bit larger, but they have it's kind of that similar modeling look to it.
1: Yes, some of the species of trillium, the modeling is much more pronounced. There's much darker greens to like much lighter shades of, of blue gray, you know, uh, so the mayapple, uh, it's almost like, at least around here, you almost have to look for that modeling Whereas the trillium is going to jump right out at you as, oh, that is a spotted or mottled leaf. I think of it as being very similar to erythronium, the trout lily.
0: Yeah, I think before they bloom, you might even think your trout lily is a, a trillium for a little bit.
1: Oh, sure. Because the single leaf of a trillium can sometimes look like the single leaf of a trout lily.
0: Yeah, so read those labels, <laughs> <laughs> especially if you're at buying them from a reputable native plant nursery. Make sure nobody mix those up. So that does bring us to what can the homeowner do to help um, maybe with some of this preservation?
1: Ah, uh, Well, the most important thing is to continue learning about native plants, continue learning about the connections that they make with the other trophic levels, you know, who are they feeding, who feeds them, Uh, who do they need to be connected with in order to disperse their seed, Uh, and that kind of thing. Learning about a thing, and knowing a thing to the point where you can name it, is a certain level of, of ownership and I feel like as we learn more about our native plants, we take more pride in them. We feel more responsible for them. We own them a little bit, and that leads to care. And that's really what we're hoping that that more homeowners and, and gardeners will do is care for these plants, um, cultivate them in their gardens, so that they can support those insects, et cetera, and you know look for them in the wild and, and just know that they're there and and when you find one, you found a really precious place. The other thing people can do is, is join up. Whenever we're talking about conservation, we're talking about a whole coalition of people working together to make something happen. When you're working to conserve a plant you want to go to the experts and get as much information as possible. You want to work with buddies that can, you know, go out into the field with you, because you know, this is supposed to be a good time too. Um, But also there are many, many ways where you can now as a citizen capture information and push it towards the scientific community. So things like iNaturalist or joining a citizen science program, such as the ones that we have here at Mount Cuba Center, Uh, really do add up to large conservation initiatives, things that really make a difference in the landscape.
0: And I like one of the philosophies that I was reading on the Mount Cuba website, that conservation by addition, so that you're adding one native plant to your existing garden rather than telling people to rip out this and that. Um, It's more of a coming from an abundance standpoint.
1: That's right. You know, many of us come to gardening through our grandparents and our parents and and my grandmother loved roses and I would never give up roses in my garden. What we mean by conservation by addition is that you don't have to give away the exotic plants in your garden. You can make your garden more diverse and more pollinator friendly simply by adding more to it. So keep the roses and maybe add a phlox
0: That's so great. I love it to have the positive message for that. And that does bring us to maybe some trillium companions because it is ephemeral. What would you plant for the next, maybe the summer season or fall to fill in that same spot where trilliums are?
1: Ah, well, remember that trilliums like to be in the forest. So the companion plants that you're going to want to make sure are there is um, a large canopy. So you're going to want those overstory trees, Uh, often oaks, hickories, maples provide good overstory to trillium. Uh, Here at Mount Cuba Center, we have a lot of tulip poplars that provide good canopy. And then you're going to want to think about the other layers of your forest ecosystem as well. So it's not just the roof in those, those large canopy trees. It's also the smaller understory trees that you can look at. Things like uh, Cercis canadensis, the red bud, or dogwood provide a next layer down. Then there's the shrub layer, uh, things like father gilla uh, or um, the, the bottle brush buckeye uh, also provide great habitat for wildlife, pollinators, birds, etc., and still create a great environment for those trillium. If you're looking for herbaceous companions, you often see trillium right alongside other spring ephemerals like uh, Virginia bluebells or the urethronium that we've been talking about. There's, there's so much I feel like I can go on for a very long time.
0: So yeah, that, that does sound like wonderful combinations right there. And I could see also maybe some native azaleas, um, the later blooming azaleas yes. also in that layer mixed in there.
1: Exactly, exactly. When you're building a trillium garden, you're really building a forest. And and maybe that's one of the great things that these plants are encouraging us to do as well. We live in a part of the country that will naturally turn itself into forest most often. And the, that's exactly where these plants want to live. They want to live in the forest. So build them a nice one.
0: Yeah, if you have the luxury of some gardening space and maybe some that you could leave alone, maybe towards the back of a property, or if you uh, are against a park or park property next to you, you can kind of borrow off of that as well. And so how would our listeners be able to contact you, Amy, and learn more about Mount Cuba?
1: Well, the best place to go for more information about Mount Cuba is our website, mtcubacenter.org. We have a lot of information on there about the activities that we do, about visiting Mount Cuba Center, about the research that we perform. And we have a fantastic tool called the Native Plant Finder that has some really interesting information about our native plant species. One of the things that it provides that I haven't seen anywhere else is a list of these companion plants. So if you wanna look up Trillium grandiflorum, it will give you a list of the things that we usually find it growing with in the wild or things that we plant it with in our own garden.
0: Excellent, thank you, Amy. Any final thoughts on growing Trillium and what makes them so special?
1: Oh, goodness. I think what makes Trillium so special is that they are around for such a short period of time. It's not something that you can go out and see on any given day. It happens in the spring when we're so hungry for something green and beautiful, and they come up and they this flash of, of happiness, and, and then they go away for the rest of the year. But in that time, they are able to accomplish so much, and they are able to give so much to humans and insects uh, and, and others as well that they really are a special thing. They're large enough that we can see them. They're they're beautiful, not every plant is beautiful, I'm sorry, but they're beautiful and they really capture the attention and the imagination.
0: Wonderful, thank you, Amy.
1: Well, thank you so much. I have really enjoyed talking about Trillium today. This was a lot of fun. This episode is brought to you by Bumble.
0: Candy Tuft Plant Profile. Candy Tuft, Iberus simpervirens, is an evergreen woody perennial plant that is hardy to USDA zones 4 to 8. The sweet name refers to Candia, an old name for the island of Crete, where it originated. It grows in a low mound shape. This plant is sometimes mistaken for the annual flower, alyssum. Candy Tuft is a member of the brassica family, and it has a cabbage-like scent making it fairly deer and rabbit resistant the lace-like flowers appear in early spring it can rebloom periodically throughout the summer and fall the flowers are typically white though some cultivars have a pink or purple tone after the first flush of flowers is done cut the plant back by a third to encourage renewed growth it prefers a sunny location with well-draining soils It is a great choice for a stone wall, rock garden, or sidewalk edge. Candy tuft also looks good spilling out of a container planting. Candy tuft is visited by many species of bees and butterflies. It can be started from softwood cutting or seed. Candy tuft. You can grow that! A crafty gardener like myself, I want to introduce you to Let's Make Art. I do a lot of DIY projects in the garden, from painting my garden gloves to creating kokodama to pouring my own stepping stones. And there's a company that can make it easier for you. Let's Make Art is a revolutionary crafting company that aims to help everyone to channel their inner artist, whether they're three or sixty-three. With the assortment of products and subscription offers, there is an endless opportunity, fun, and access to -to easy-to-understand tutorials and resources for everyone to learn a craft or take up a hobby. Anyone can have art supplies delivered right to their door in the form of monthly subscriptions, project kits, and supplies for a variety of activities. You can start learning basic lettering techniques to get you more familiar with your abilities with hand lettering for that garden journal you might be keeping. You can also shop all the best lettering supplies, boxes, and kits curated and approved by in-house artists. There's free weekly art journaling tutorials by art journaling artists and instructors. Everyone can join with their supplies at home. Grab the prepackaged kits or get all the videos first with an art journal box subscription. Learn from watercolor artists and instructors. Whether you're a total beginner or you've mastered the arts, let's make art takes the guesswork out of watercolor and creates easy and fun kits. The only thing you'll need is a brush. Let's make art simple together. Check out Let's Make Art today by going to our special link zen.ai forward slash garden DC. That's zen.ai forward slash garden DC. Happy crafting. What's new in the garden this week well it's been a very wet one with rain almost every day so i've tried to stay out of the garden beds for the most part but i did check over at my community garden plot and saw that the peas have popped up yay back in my home garden lily of the valley seemed to be doubling and tripling every day since they emerged from the ground and the astilbe is doing the same Soon they'll both be in spring bloom. Meanwhile, I'm enjoying the beautiful pink blooms all along my redbud tree. In the local gardening world, there's a great opportunity to see the trees at the National Cemetery in Arlington. They're at the peak of spring splendor soon, and they have over 300 species there. So you can go on a a walk of the Memorial Arboretum on Friday, April 29th, or Friday, May 13th. Ladue Topiary Gardens has announced its 14th annual garden festival this spring. That will take place on Saturday, May 7th from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. And you can go online now to Ladue Topiary Gardens website and reserve your tickets. Sandy Spring Garden Tour is happening this year on Saturday, May 21st from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., You can immerse yourself in a spring display of beautiful local gardens, and that's in Sandy Spring, Maryland. And you can find more about that at sandyspringmuseum.org. The Mountain Laurel Garden Club is presenting two important events in June, the ever popular annual perennial plant sale on Saturday, June 4th, and the 2022 Country Gardens Tour Three weeks later on Saturday, June twenty fifth. Both events are Rain or Shine and take place in Western Maryland. You can find out more about them at Mountain Laurel Garden Club. Happy gardening! a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. The Urban Garden 101 Ways to Grow Food and Beauty in the City comes out this spring. You can pre-order it now at amazon.com and bookshop.org. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDCGardener, on Instagram at WDCGardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.